For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I thank you all for being here and not playing hooky while Father Scott's away. Uh, I'd rather preach to a semi-packed house than just a few of us, although it's still worthwhile, but it's very helpful. I think back to, it's almost two years ago, when David and myself and Jason and Father Scott would be in here and conducting services to a completely empty church, and uh, it's a very different, unsettling feeling. So your smiling faces uh, make all the difference, so thank you for being here. Uh, Father Scott's been away on a personal retreat, but he'll be with us this evening when we gather for prayer and worship. And I've enjoyed my time in charge over the past week, but I am happy to give the keys of the kingdom back to him. Uh, I've done enough damage, so I look forward to his safe return home. And I'll take tomorrow off, and he can pick up the pieces. Uh, Now, I don't know how things have been going for you during Lent this year, But I can say with certainty that this season has truly been flying by. We have one more Sunday in Lent left before we reach Holy Week. To me, it feels like Ash Wednesday was like two weeks ago. But it's been almost four weeks since Ash Wednesday. Now, maybe this change is due to the fact that this is the first time in my life where I'm observing the season of Lent as a father of two daughters. So a three-year-old and a seven-month-old may have something to do with it. But whatever the reason, we are quickly making our way to Palm Sunday. And before I go any further in my sermon, I, I have to give credit where credit is due. We're going to focus today on the parable of the prodigal son. And I'm standing on the shoulders of some great men and biblical scholars who've done a lot of good work and have made this somewhat easy for me, as it were. Uh, If you were with us last fall, you'll remember for the adult, adult education hour, and even for the youth, we went through this whole series on the parables that was an online course offered by Neshota House uh, Seminary and taught by uh, Dr. Garwood Anderson, who taught me Greek and New Testament and Gospels. So some of what you'll hear today may sound familiar if you were with us last fall. If not, then you're going to think I'm brilliant. And so I'll take that. I'll receive that. Uh, Also, uh, a a scholar, Dr. Klein Snodgrass, who wrote a 900-page volume on the parables of Jesus. Uh, It's a brick of a book. It makes a good weapon as well. I'll defend my wife with it uh, at home. Um, Some of what he thinks and what he's he's come up with will, will make its way in here. Dr. David Wenham as well, who wrote a book on the parables, uh, very creatively titled, The Parables of Jesus. Uh, he'll, he'll, make his, he'll make an appearance. And so will Tim Mackey in The Bible Project. Uh, I'm, I'm big fans of what they're doing, and so they'll have a place in this sermon. And then finally, a biblical interpreter uh, recently passed away, Dr. I believe Dr. Uh, Kenneth Bailey. 
Uh, he has made great contributions uh, in biblical studies, especially in the area of understanding what the context of Jesus' day was. So he wrote a, a book, uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And it's a lot of a lot of great information about how things were for Jesus and for his people and his contemporaries in first century Palestine. And so things that we just don't pick up on, he sheds some light and it's like, oh, now that makes more sense. And so it's a fantastic resource. I'm standing on their shoulders today. I've heard it said, first time you say something from somebody else, you quote them. Second time you say, well, I've heard it said. Third time, as I always say. And so I'm not there yet. So I'll give the credit due, like I said. I'll give the credit where it needs to go. So this morning, our gospel reading, it was the entirety of Luke 15. But we'll take it in two parts. We got the second part first, and then we got the first part secondly. But that still works. Uh, it fits with where we left off in Luke's gospel last week. Last week, we heard Jesus talk about the need for repentance. And this week, Jesus talks about the values of God's kingdom as they're related to the penitent. And like I said, we're going to focus on what many think is the most famous of Jesus' parables, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, before I go any further, I do want to talk a few moments about Jesus and his parables in general. And this will set us up well for the rest of today and even for next week, because next week's gospel reading is a parable. And Father Scott decided that we would focus on the gospel readings during Lent. So you're going to get another parable next week. So what we learn about parables today, keep it at least for a week, and then you can forget everything I said. But hang on to it for a week and come back next week, and it'll be, it'll be very helpful. So first thing that we can note about Jesus and his parables they are not always clear. In fact, they're rather confusing. Now, I'm in good company when I say this. I think we should consider a parable that Jesus told that is about parables, the parable of the sower. We find that in Matthew 13. We know the basic details. A farmer goes out to sow seed. Some falls on the path and birds come and eat it up. Some falls on rocky ground, and it quickly sprouts, but withers when scorched by the hot sun. Some falls among the thorns, and the thorns choke it out. Some finally falls on good soil, and it grows to produce a crop 30, 60, 100 fold. If you have ears to hear, then hear. Jesus tells his audience a story about farming. Now, I'm not a farmer. I can only go so far with this story. Without the explanation that follows, I'm lost. And so is his audience. In Matthew 13, verses 10 through 13, we read, The disciples came to Jesus and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. You see, Jesus is intentionally trying to be unclear. 
He isn't trying to spoon-feed people and speak plainly. This is frustrating for me, and perhaps for you. But if we have ears to hear, then we will hear. If we pay attention and let his words linger in our mind and we sit with it, well, then the Holy Spirit will open our minds and our hearts to his words and give us the beginnings of understanding. Now, it's important to remember that as Jesus gets closer to his passion, his teachings and parables become clearer. But in the beginning of his ministry and on the way to Jerusalem, that's where we are in Luke, thir- in Luke 15, we're on the way to Jerusalem. His teachings and parables, they're, st- they're still more cryptic. So I think it raises a question. Well, what's a good definition for the term parable? Well, I think to start, let's look at what isn't a good definition. And we can go to Merriam-Webster for that. Merriam-Webster defines the term parable as a short, fictitious story that illustrates a moral attitude or a religious principle. To be brief, that's not entirely correct. It gets at some aspects of what a parable is, but it largely misses the mark. If it's slightly changed, that religious principle part, it could be a, a fitting definition for Aesop's fables, but not for a parable. I think a more helpful definition was given by 20th century Welsh theologian C.H. Dodd. He says, at its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. So let's break that down. Jesus used both metaphor and simile in his parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Or there was a man who had two sons. Common life refers to the life and times in Jesus' day. In almost all of Jesus' parables, something strange happens. Now, we may not get it, but people in first century Palestine would have gotten it. At some point, they would have stopped and been like, this isn't right. And teasing the mind into active thought, well, that means that parables don't come with their own interpretation. The hearer is invited to think about it. Now, I often wonder why Jesus told unclear, confusing parables to uneducated and hard-hearted people. Like, that's just not going to work. Why wasn't he straightforward? Well, he tried to be straightforward in Luke chapter 4, and it almost got him killed. You'll remember in Luke 4, he's in Nazareth, his hometown. He goes into the synagogue, and he opens up the the scroll of Isaiah. He reads from what we would call chapter 61 and 58, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All eyes are on him. He rolls up the scroll, sits down, looks at the people and says, today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. They're not too pleased with that. He pushes back and they're really upset with him. Luke 4 even says they're filled with wrath. They drag him out of the synagogue and they try and throw him off a cliff. 
So maybe straightforward isn't the way to go. Maybe he needs to be a little bit indirect. Now there's precedent for this. Let's go back to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 12. Consider the Old Testament prophet Nathan and his confrontation with King David after David's sinful relationship with Bathsheba and the murder with Uriah. Nathan doesn't charge in and blast David with bold accusations that would only anger him and raise his level of defensiveness toward the prophet. He tells a story about a lamb, a lamb that is like family to its poor owner, only to be taken from him by a rich man in order to be used as dinner for a traveler from out of town. David is drawn in, and he's so angry that he tells Nathan that surely this man must die unless he pays restitution at the rate of 400%. And only then does Nathan say, you're the man. Well, David's been had, but Nathan came in through the back door. Emily Dickinson said, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. And I think that's what we see here with Nathan. And I think that's what Jesus did. Jesus told the truth, but he told it slant. So how are we to read and interpret the parables of Jesus? Well, I think the Bible Project helps us out. They made a great explainer video on the parables of Jesus. So we're going to watch that now when they hit the play button. Jesus of Nazareth was a master teacher, and some of his most well-known teachings are told in short stories called parables. Yeah, like the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who was looking for pearls, and when he found the ultimate pearl, he sold everything so that he could buy it. Must have been some pretty amazing pearl. Or the kingdom of God is like a tiny mustard seed that a farmer planted in his garden. It grew and became a huge tree, and birds came to perch in its branches. And that's a beautiful image, but... What does it mean? Exactly. Jesus didn't tell parables to make everything clear. Rather, he wanted to provoke the imagination and invite people to see what God is doing in the world from a new perspective. So let's talk about how to read the parables of Jesus. Now there's many great teachers that throughout history have used stories to teach students about morality, religion, philosophy. But Jesus didn't use his parables to teach abstract religious or moral ideals. He said that his parables were about himself and his mission. His mission, which was to announce that the kingdom of God was arriving on earth as it is in heaven. Right. So in Jesus' day, the Israelites were ruled by the Roman Empire. But their scriptures promised that one day their God would come to rule his people as king. And so many Israelites wanted to revolt against Rome and fight for their freedom. And this is what some people thought of as the kingdom of God. Exactly. But Jesus was a poor traveling prophet, healing the sick, inviting people to follow him. And he said that this was the arrival of God's kingdom. And that didn't fit people's expectations. Right. And so Jesus used some parables to help people imagine that his small movement was the arrival of God's kingdom. Oh yeah, like the parable that the kingdom of God is yeast hidden in a lump of dough. 
and you might not see its influence, but it's going to change everything. Jesus also told parables about the upside-down values of God's kingdom, about how the least important people in the world are actually the most important people to God, especially those who are poor and of low status. Yeah, like the parable about the business owner who hired workers throughout the day, in the morning, later in the day, and even towards the end of the day. And when it was time to pay everyone, he paid them all the same wage. Right, Jesus is showing how money and status are irrelevant to God, who offers his generous mercy to everybody. Now, not all of the parables have happy endings. Some are really intense. Yes, Jesus stood in the tradition of Israel's prophets, who also told parables to criticize Israel's leaders because they mistook their kingdom for God's. So Jesus warned the leaders of his day, if they don't accept his offer of God's kingdom, they're headed for destruction. Yeah, like the parable of the landowner who built a wonderful vineyard and he expects it to produce fruit. Yes, Jesus gets this parable from the prophet Isaiah, but then he adapts it. Right, so the landowner appoints managers to take care of this vineyard. And at harvest, he sends servants to collect the fruit but those managers kill the servants. And so the landowner sends his own son to confront the managers, and they kill him too. And so Jesus asked the people around him, what do you all think this landowner should do? Oh, he's gonna punish those managers and hire new ones. Jesus knew that if Israel kept on their current path, they would be destroyed by Rome. And so in parables like this, he's forcing people to make a decision about his offer of God's kingdom. Are people going to reject him, ignore him, or trust and follow him? Now, if this message of God's kingdom is so important, why cloak it in parables? Why not be more clear? Well, through riddles and parables, Jesus could make really bold claims that revealed truth to people who were open-minded. For those who have ears to hear, they could ponder it and go deeper. But the parables would also conceal his message from those who were against him so that he could buy more time. Buy time for what? Well, Jesus was preparing his closest followers for the greatest surprise yet. Jesus claimed that Israel's God was coming to rule over his people, not through coercion or violent force, but through self-giving love as he was going to die for their sins. But his death wasn't the end. Right, he said that his death would be like a tiny seed buried in the ground, but then it would grow and produce a crop with many seeds. So these parables, they explain who Jesus was and what he was up to. And the gospel authors have preserved these parables so that now every generation of Jesus' followers can read and ponder them. And imagine how God's kingdom is still at work even today. Right, these ancient parables are still full of new surprises and challenges. They're like a storehouse packed with treasures, some that are new, some that are old, and it's all just waiting to be discovered. Thank you. Now there's a lot there, so let's take away what we need for today. Few observations. First, Jesus wanted to provoke the imagination and invite people to see what God was doing in the world from a new perspective. Second, Jesus' parables are not about abstract or moral ideal, ideals, but they are about himself and his mission, bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And there are three basic categories for Jesus' parables. 
the surprising arrival of God's kingdom, the upside down values of God's kingdom, and the offer of God's kingdom that requires a decision. And finally, Jesus needed to buy time to get his message out and not get killed too early. Telling parables met that need. So if we apply these principles for a reading today, we can see how they work. Now we heard three parables in our reading, and we're going to focus on the final one. So let's set some context. Luke 15, 1 and 2 tells us that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus to hear him teach and preach. We are also told that Pharisees and scribes, the experts in the law, they're nearby, and they're not too happy with what Jesus is doing and the company he's keeping. So they grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and tax collectors, and he, he eats with them. Now, to receive sinners and eat with them is another way of saying that Jesus is accepting of them. He's okay with being around them. He's friends with them. The Pharisees and scribes would have none of that. Basically, Jesus was associating with the wrong people. What kind of prophet, what kind of Messiah, what kind of representative of God would be like that? Verse 3 tells us that in response to their grumbling, Jesus told them, both groups, the sinners and the righteous, a parable. And then we get three parables. Not one, but three. A parable about a lost sheep, a parable about a lost coin, and a parable about a lost son, or sons. Luke, the good physician that he is, cannot count. Or perhaps he's doing something to help us out. Maybe he's taking three parables and he's making one unit. Well, they, they share a common theme, things that are lost. But there's more going on. You see, he's building the story. The first parable is about one lost sheep out of 100, a 1% sheep problem. The second parable is about one lost coin out of 10, a 10% coin problem. The third parable is about one lost son out of two, a 50% human problem. You can see the buildup. You can see what Jesus is getting at. We can also start to see which category this parable falls into. I think it belongs in the second category, the upside down values of God's kingdom. And that'll become clearer as we go. Now the response by Jesus shows us that he's offering a corrective to the misunderstanding of the Pharisees and scribes regarding the values of God's kingdom and who gets to be in it. To the Pharisees and scribes, the anointed one of God ushering, ushering in God's kingdom would punish the sinners and the unrighteous, not receive them and eat with them. Those actions would be reserved for the righteous and obedient people like themselves. But Jesus wants them to understand that his values and the values of God's kingdom do not line up with the values of the religious experts of his context. Now, I think we miss the fullness and the depth and the layers of Jesus' parables because of at least two factors. First, I don't think we're probably asking the right questions up front. And second, we don't have the context of his day. We don't have that down enough to really appreciate what we're hearing. First question we should ask when we get to a parable, where do we see Jesus in this parable? 
and what is he doing in it? Once we sort that out, well, then we can ask, where do I see myself in this parable? And as far as the context goes, well, there's some, there's some significant things that we should note regarding this parable. First, the younger son. Do we have any younger sons in here? I'm a younger son. Are there any other younger? No? Okay, the younger siblings. I see you over there. I see that hand in the back. Well, the younger son, he's not just being a bit rude or a bit disrespectful to his father. He's bringing great shame upon him, and by extension, his whole family. To ask for his inheritance before his father actually dies is essentially communicating, I wish you were dead so I could get what's mine. There is no other way to take that statement. He then goes to a far country, most likely Gentile territory, and blows the money, just wastes it, excessive spending, hence the term prodigal. This brings shame to his father and family as well. Broken hungry due to a famine, he takes a job working for a Gentile pig farmer. For a good Jewish family, a good Jewish father, this son has checked all the boxes on how to get to the bottom of the barrel of life. It could hardly be any worse. But coming to his senses, he plans to go to his father and tell him how he sinned against heaven, that means God, and his father, and to beg his father to take him back as a hired servant. There's no reason to think this plan will work, but it's all he's got, or he's dead. So he returns home. While he's a long way off, the father saw him approaching and felt compassion for him. He ran to him and hugged him and kissed him. The son began his apology, but the father cut him off and says to the servants, put the best robe, my robe, on him. Put a ring on his hand. You're back in the family. Put shoes on his feet. Because sons wear shoes, not servants. And he had the fattened calf killed to throw a party not just for the family, but for the whole village. Now remember that I told you a few minutes ago that there's always a strangeness and a point in Jesus' parable where the hearers say, that's not right. And here it is. This is where the beauty of the parable is most clearly seen. In fact, some people think it's such a beautiful story and presentation, it's, it's referred to as the gospel within the gospel. The strangeness is in the father's running and embracing his son and the rest of that treatment. You see, in that day and in that part of the world, grown men did not run. Aristotle once said that great men don't run. One's seriousness and stature and status would be shown in how one would walk, not run. That's embarrassing. And the welcoming of the son back into the family that happened, that would not have been right either. The whole part of the story is off. Why would the father run to his son? Was he really that happy to see him? Well, perhaps there's more. Biblical interpreter Kenneth Bailey, he's speculating in his book, a book he wrote, but he offers insight about a ceremony during that day 
that might help teach us. The ceremony is called the Ketsasa. The Ketsasa was a custom that the people of the village would participate in upon the return of a son who had brought shame upon his family and the village. Upon the son's return, the people would come out and there would be this ceremonial smashing of pots and gourds and jars and everything that was in the pots and gourds and jars just flying everywhere. And all that smashing to bits would symbolize the forever broken relationship between the village and the son. That son would get booted right back out and shamed outside of the village. Don't ever return again. And the people did this to stand in solidarity with the family and in defense of the father. Right? This is a way of banding together. <coughs> so why would the father be watching and running to his son? Because he has to beat the villagers. He has to get there first. The father shames himself so that the son is not shamed. Do we, as Christians, not believe that there is one who shamed himself so that we not be shamed? You see, perhaps this is where the parable shows itself to be the gospel within the gospel. With the Ketsasa, in the background, we, we get a hint of the cross, of Jesus shaming himself on our behalf so that we don't suffer the shame that is rightly ours. We become the righteousness of God. Bob Dylan had it right. He told us the truth when he said that Jesus offered up his innocence and got repaid with scorn so that we could get shelter from the storm. The parable then moves to the older son. He does play an important part. He comes in from the field. Heard the partying. He asked the question, what's going on? Servant tells him the story. Your brother's come back. Your dad's welcomed him in. It's a big party. His reaction is not like his dad's. He's angry. Maybe he has a point. He's been faithful and obedient. When the father comes out and begs him to come in, he makes that. He, he tells the truth about his faithfulness and obedience to, to his father and his loyalty. You can almost hear him say, this son of yours totally wasted your money, totally dishonored you, and he deserves nothing, no matter what he says or does. It's ironic that this son who is so faithful, he's the one who's lost, and the son who is lost is found. This older son can't find his way home. He can't get back into the house. But the father persists. He says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The excessive and over-the-top love of the father wins the day. It's the father who is truly prodigal, not the son. What else could he do but rejoice? What else should Pharisees and scribes have done but rejoice at the repentance of tax collectors and sinners? We get, we get two attitudes that are contrasted towards repentant sinners. Rejoicing and anger. 
Now, now we can ask ourselves, we can ask first, where do we see Jesus? What's he up to in this parable? We can ask where we see ourselves. I think it's clear where we see Jesus and his compassion and welcoming of the two who are lost, of those who are lost, I should say, and those who come to their senses and repent. Clearly, Jesus is in the place of the Father, embodying the kingdom values of love, forgiveness, reconciliation, grace, and mercy that triumphs over judgment. But where are we? Where are you? Where am I? Do I really understand the values of God's kingdom? Are those values truly my values? Do I rejoice at, the repent, at those who repent? Now, I know God's kingdom is for everyone, but perhaps there are some who don't deserve to be welcomed into it. You know those people, those who have gone to a far-off country. They've been gone too long, and they can't, they can't see how they can come back. They live next to us. They work with us. They shop in the same stores as we do. They come to our food giveaways. They beg from us at all the intersections. So where am I? Am I at the table with Jesus and the sinners? Or am I outside, angry and grumbling? Where are you? Are you with me? Or are you with Jesus? Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.